0: Good morning again, Terra Nova. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dennis Gardner. I I currently work for Terra Nova as the operations director, but I am fortunate to be able to serve the church body in a handful of other ways as well. Today is our uh, next episode in Terra Nova's journey through the book of Hebrews. And as I was thinking about this, I I realized how much I've, I've always liked how our church's willingness was, we had a willingness to jump into the deep end when it comes to our sermon series, and, and you know, we've tackled some challenging books, and I've, I've been around Nova for a while, so I, I just did a little bit of research about this. To date, we have gone through these books, Ruth, that too, we've gone through Ruth, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, 11 out of the 12 Minor Prophets. Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 Timothy, and 1 Corinthians. Terra Nova has hit all of those books. Um, And all of that's online, too, if you ever want to go back and revisit those sermons or hear them for the first time. And even our intermittent topical series that we tackle are far from fluff. In the past, we've done the Apostles' Creed, We've done the five solas of the Reformation. We've done the names of God. We've done the attributes of God. We did the seven deadly sins. How many people here were for the seven deadly sins? Yeah, man, that one was something, you remember? That was a life-changing series. So yes, when when Rachel and I found out that Hebrews was on deck, we were pretty psyched. But then I didn't quite anticipate the slight intimidation that came when I saw my name on a preaching schedule. Because this book is no joke, right? It is life-changingly deep when it's dissected well. And it's important then to intermittently um, be reminded of the big picture of Hebrews, especially when it plays into a specific passage like it does today. So I would love to do a quick Reader's Digest recap or an overview of the book of Hebrews for context here. The author, I don't know if this has been mentioned yet or not, but the author is unknown. But if we look at the letter itself, it's very obvious that he was an intellectual Hebrew Christian who was well-versed in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And even the Apostle Paul has been largely counted out as the author of this book, but it's, it's still a possibility according to some. Other prominent candidates for the writer of Hebrews has been Barnabas or Apollos or Aquila and Priscilla. But even these three were all likely read all of Paul's letters, um, so they were in that sphere. But whoever it was, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a particular audience. And that audience is Jewish people who have been converted to Christianity, but are now kind of becoming increasingly unsure about some of the truths of the good news of Jesus, which for them was very new. And it was shocking and controversial. It was was even scandalous because thousands of years they had of trusted dependence on the sacrificial and the rabbinic systems that shaped their identity and shaped their whole culture. And then in a matter of three years, that whole system becomes not undone, but flipped. And not like flipped upside down, but flipped right side up. Right? The Jesus event exposes and fulfills every ancient promise that was made by Moses and was made by the prophets. So these ancient Jews are, ne- are needing to understand what they, that what they knew was only in part. But now the promised Messiah and the freedom that he brings has come and it has been accomplished. And to be fair, this was probably a pretty hard pill to swallow for them at this time. It was a huge change. And it was really fast, because the long-awaited Messiah had come. The prophets had spoken. He came. They accepted his Messiahship, but it still doesn't look the way that they expected in light of what they were taught for their entire lives by the priestly temple-based faith that essentially defined their culture. So they find themselves doubting Jesus' event, doubting the Jesus' event, and, and all that it's promised to be. And, and they're considering reverting back to the old ways. Where they have temple sacrifices as a means of forgiving of their sins. Their insurity finds its footing in the fact that Jesus is human. This is, this is the detention point for the people who are struggling here. And this early on in Christendom, this baby church, this was kind of hard to reconcile for them. The truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And again, to be fair, it's still kind of hard to grasp for us on this side of heaven. So they're struggling. How can Jesus be human and glorious? All right? That's the big question for today. And much of the book of Hebrews, right, the author is showing how Jesus was superior to any and every possible thing that could be put in his place. Something that is far too easy for us to do, even here and now is put something in Jesus's place. And the message of the book can and should resonate with every one of us, every human, whose original sin-based bent is to look to things that are other than Jesus, that we might be deceived into thinking are better than Jesus. Today's title is A Better Glory. And today's roadmap is, is a textbook roadmap. We're going to take first uh, a deep dive into, well, what is glory? Um, Then we're going to view it in light of today's passage. And finally, we're going to uh, try to tackle what that means for us. Okay? Before we do that, let's pray. Father, as we continue today's service, we seek your clarity. We seek your peace. Your word reminds us that... The more we seek you, the more we will find you. So lead our surrendered hearts individually and as a church. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to your spirit and what it would reveal to us. We ask all of this in the name of God the Father, Jesus our Savior, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Okay. Let's talk about glory. Here is a pretty wordy, and pretty accurate definition, glory. Glory is the power, might, or splendor of an individual. In Christian theology, this often relates to God. The glory of God is the splendor and brilliant beauty that shines through all of his divine attributes, but is especially evident in the crucified and risen Christ. Got it? Everybody got it? right Because if somebody walked up to you on the street, like a young person or something, and asked you to define glory, we, we would all like, come up with something exactly like that. right? right? We, we would definitely just have that right on board. Well, the truth is, glory is just one of those words that we see enough and hear enough that it has the potential to become a filler word. Right? It doesn't get its due weight every time we see it or hear it or sing it. I like to use the word awesome as an example of this. Right As a problem of words being watered down. My my teen years were spent square in the 80s. So I actually remember when awesome became a buzzword. I remember when awesome became slang filler. And then later in life it became clear that 99% of the things that we call awesome don't actually inspire awe. (laughs) And we can find glory fall into this category to some examples if if you've maybe visited some more charismatic churches people will shout glory right as a worshipful proclamation like as like hallelujah or they'll shout glory or they'll put them together they'll scream glory hallelujah or in a more secular context right we hear the term fleeting glory like an athlete or an artist whose best days are behind them or going out in a blaze of glory Right? As a thing of, of one reaching for something at the end of something that's not really that glorious. Right? And these are just these are weak usages of the word glory. So to get a better, more biblical definition and understanding, um, there are some words for what glory is that could be found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So just kinda kind of Bible geek out for a little while here. In the Old Testament, The transliterated Hebrew word, most translated for glory, is had. And Strong's defines it as splendor, majesty, vigor, grandeur, an imposing form and appearance. And the second most used word in the Old Testament for glory is kabod, which means weight or heaviness. If you remember Pastor Ed Marcel, the pastor who planted terra, you might recall that he really gravitated toward that particular definition of glory. He loved talking about glory being weighty. And in the New Testament, the Greek word that's often translated as glory is doxa. And that means praise and honor. Again, splendor, dignity, and especially divine quality. So what I did was I kind of just combined all of that and i put it together for a different definition of glory as a heavy, weighty, imposing form and appearance of an especially divine quality. Okay? That's all great. So let's look at some actual biblical examples of where we see the glory of God. Okay? Um, if you don't have a bible today or if you do have a bible, open it to 2nd Chronicles chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, can you put that big square up there? If you don't have a Bible and you want to have the wealth of God's word in your back pocket in a matter of seconds, just point it at that square and you will have a lot of translations. If you pre- don't have a Bible today and you want to have a paper Bible in your hand, which is totally understandable, Daniel's got some Bibles over there. You just slip up your hands. He'll give you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one. It is yours as a gift for us. Second Chronicles chapter 5. little context for this narrative. So we have King David. King David desired to build a permanent temple in Israel after centuries of the tabernacle just being a tent. But David asked God and God said, no, no, you're a man of war. You're a man who sheds blood. Your son Solomon, he's the one that's going to build the temple. So here we are in 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Solomon has just finished building the temple. And he's had dedicated all the items and all the holy vessels and all the treasures. And they're brought in. And he assembled all the Levitical elders and the priests and the heads of the of the tribes. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place. And we pick up in verse 11 of chapter 5. It says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, for the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, their sons and kidsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, in praise to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So they had brought their priestly and liturgical A game and they couldn't even stand to minister as the way they were. They were knocked over by the glory of the Lord. And if you are picturing the climactic ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark, it, it might have happened like that, minus the melting Nazis. <laughs> Knocked over by the glory of the Lord. Or, let's pop over to Isaiah chapter 6, if you can turn there. If we look at the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 6, this is where the glory of God doesn't have a physical imposing effect, but it overwhelms the heart of humanity. Okay? This is when Isaiah has a vision and he's confronted with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah says this, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two it covered its face, with two it covered its feet, and with two it flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook. And at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, we see smoke. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar... And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. When confronted with God's purity and God's holiness, I say doesn't get knocked over like the Levite priest did, or at least it's not written that he did, but he says, Woe was me. And he becomes completely undone, completely unraveled, when confronted with God's glory. And this is not some minor conviction. He's not like, oh, hey, there's the glory of God. You know, I should read my Bible more, you know? Oh, look, there's the face of the Lord and all of his holiness. Yeah, I'm not praying enough. No, no. Everything about Isaiah, everything about him when confronted with perfect holiness just doesn't sync up at all. And he says, woe was me. I'm completely undone, but within the glory of God Isaiah finds the mercy of God, and he finds the grace of God, which is one of God's overarching attributes. And God sends an angel with a coal to cleanse Isaiah and prepare him to be sent out and serve him. And that interaction between the two angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his holiness? No. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So we got a picture? We got a picture of Old Testament glory and how imposing and amazing and powerful it could be. One more quick aside before we jump into the passage, I want to talk about angels. Why angels? Okay. Um, the Better Than Angels sermon was two weeks ago, and it was preached by Pastor Daniel Williams when we visited Terra Nova in Saratoga, which by the way was a treat, right? It really was. Um, I'm guessing a bunch of us didn't or couldn't make it up north, so um, possibly not have heard that sermon. Uh, so I'd like to just quick recap, Pastor Daniel, and touch on angels. Angels, as, as a lot of us know, right, are, are beings that God speaks through. They're seen as intermediaries. Uh, in scripture, they have various different roles. They're messengers, which is what angel means. Right? They're helpers, they're guides, they're deliverers They carry out judgment And if you look at Matthew eighteen ten, They're privileged to see the face of God These are creatures who are, dare I say it, awesome right? People who encounter them are prone to do one of two things Either bow down and worship to them Or completely be frozen with fear And if we go back to Isaiah's vision Right? with the seraphim there and God. And if your focus is on how awesome the angels are in that picture, you're completely missing the point. So the audience of this letter, the letter of Hebrews, are in a place where they're they're seemingly honoring and revering angels. And Pastor Daniel made a point to say, they're probably not worshiping angels, not flat out worshiping them. Otherwise, the person who's writing this book very likely would have just called them out on this. But they're putting angels on a pedestal because uh, the Jewish idea of glory, the ancient Jewish idea of glory was tied to angels. And they considered humans to be inferior to angels. And therefore they wondered how Christ can be superior to angels when in fact he was a man. So the writer of Hebrews has to walk through these attributes of Jesus and show and prove how great and glorious he is. And he does this to the Hebrews by referencing the Hebrew Scriptures, by referencing the Old Testament. Jesus is superior to the angels because of the unique relationship that he has to God the Father. Jesus is the Son. Again, was, again, I'm saying it again, the recipients of these letters were becoming far too comfortable being impressed by things other than Jesus. The problem that Jesus is human How can he be human and glorious? So we're going to jump into the passage. We'll deep dive here into the passage proper. Last week we covered verses one through four of chapter two, um, and going to be summarized like this. The writer says, Look, this has all been confirmed. All right, the gospel is true. Don't drift away. You know, a warning of drift, don't do that. And then in verse five the writer shifts. What he does is interesting. He shifts the focus to humans, who we are, and what we're made to do, which is interesting, because when we think about ourselves, we have a tendency to shoot too high or shoot too low, right? Right? To shoot too low is to say, well, there's just nothing special about us. We're no better or worse than plants or animals. We're just insignificant in the universe, all we are is dust in the wind. And a too high assessment of ourselves would create pretty much an an unhealthy, unbalanced greatness that we are the measure of all things, right? And if one distorts scripture enough, one can come to the conclusion that we would be able to consider ourselves as little gods. The writer puts the kibosh on both of these things. Yes, we humans have a level of honor and a level of dignity, but it's only because we're made in the image of God. But at the same time, we're not God. We are faulty by our own doing and in need of redemption. So first, in verse five, it says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. In other words, humans are greater than angels and will one day rule the future world then immediately almost contradicts that by quoting Psalm chapter 8, in which it starts with the implication that mankind is so small and so insignificant that it's amazing that God would even take notice of us. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And that sentence can easily bring us back to the whole how we see ourselves. Right? How we make assessments of ourselves. If you read that, what is man that you are mindful? Is your first instinct the humility of it? Like, ugh, what am I that you are mindful of me? I'm the worst. Or is your first instinct the glory of it? Yes, God is mindful of me. Well, again, it's both and it's neither. A paradox of man's physical insignificance contrasted with his spiritual importance. Now, one more little aside. Let me pause for a piece of clarification here. Most of the scholars and commentators that, that I read in preparation will agree that the apostle who is writing Hebrews is not using Psalm 8 in this context messianically. In other words, he's not directly, it's not a directly being implied or stated that Psalm 8 is specifically talking about Jesus in a prophetic way. Because when we read that, we see the title Son of Man and our hindsight immediately thinks of Jesus. But Son of Man is part of a Hebrew parallelism. And it's essentially Son of Man means man or mankind or humanity. Uh, We can see that in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is called Son of Man like 80 times but it's being used here to talk to us about us, as it was intended for David's original hearers, that God made us for special purposes. Two, in this space, first, in verse seven, is that we are to reflect God's glory, It says, you have crowned him, that is, you have crowned humanity, mankind, us, you and me, With glory and honor. And this goes right back to the garden, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it's stated that humans are made in God's image. No, that does not make us little gods. This means that we are meant to be and do something that no other part of creation is meant to do. We are to be little reflections of him. We move on to verse 8. Second, we are also designed to rule God's world. It describes God putting everything in subjection under his feet, under man's feet. God made human beings to be guardians and protectors and rulers of his world. He intended it that way for his glory and for our blessing. Not angels. Even though we tend to think of angels as more glorious than us at the moment. 1 Corinthians 6 and 3 asks... Do you not know that you're to judge angels? But we need to recognize here, within this context, with extreme, with extreme humility, this distinctive glory and dignity that humans have. And the writer's making these points about humans seemingly to show that just being a human isn't such a lowly state. That Jesus being human for a time doesn't discount his gloriousness. Then verse 8 jumps to the other side. It reminds us of our present state. We were created to be greater than the angels, but our sinful state, which is for a little while, currently lower than the angels. The psalm quotation ends in verse 8 by saying, putting everything in subjection under his feet, right? Or I'll say it in the New Living Translation. The very end of the psalm quotation. You, God, gave them, humans, authority over all things. Is what it says. Then the writer just brings us right back to our current reality. So no longer quoting the psalm, the writer picks up and he says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, humanity, he, God, left nothing outside of his man's control. And then boom, right back down. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Again, I'll I'll go back to the New Living Translation and read it this way. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out in terms of what we're to rule but we have not yet seen everything put under our authority. Ouch, right? This is what God designed you for, but we've not yet seen that happen. Gotta hydrate before this becomes heavy. The truth is, we are not ruling this world very well, at all. We probably don't even have an accurate understanding of what ruling is. We are not reflecting God's glory very well. We've tanked it. We've tanked it to the detriment of this planet. And here's the hard truth, and this might be unpopular, you and I are the problem with this world. And if we're the problem, we can't be the solution. And there are no real human solutions, right? Education, government programs, cultural change, social justice, these might be good, but they're band-aids because we cannot save ourselves. How? How are we to be restored to the honored rulers that God intended us to be? We need a perfect human to represent us and to take our place and succeed where we have failed. Jesus didn't come to earth with the glory of angels. He came as a man because it was man that he came to redeem. And the commentator Albert Barnes says it this way, and I love this. It was proper since he came to redeem man that he should be a man and not take on himself the nature of angels. And for the same reason, it was proper that he should be subjected to sufferings and be made a man of sorrows. Jesus had all the glory that was due humanity and upon his resurrection, all the glory of God the Father. And if you doubt this, this is how the writer started Hebrews. Let's go back to the beginning, chapter one, verses three and four. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Better glory than the glory of angels, better glory than the glory of mankind. So, this passage is full of layers, uh, it, it's seemingly full of contradictions. Talking about who we are. Yes, we are walking contradictions. But then we come to verse 9. And those first four words of verse 9. We do not yet see everything in subjection to humans. Verse 9. But we see him. Sure enough, right? Though not specifically messianic, the author begins to apply Psalm 8. Not to humanity in general but to one human in particular. See? All scripture does speak of Jesus. Jesus too, right? So we'll see. Jesus too, while he was in in his incarnated form, was for a little while made lower than the angels, but not because of a sinful state, but to show the big picture of how his glory and his honor was resultant of his suffering and his death, so that by the grace of God... He might taste death for everyone. There's our perfect human who stands in our place. Jesus, by grace, to be that perfect human to represent us, to take our place, to succeed where we have failed. The idea of Jesus being crowned with glory and honor because of death is found famously in Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. through 11. Listen to this in the context of today's passage. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Easy to say, but here we go. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we see him, right? We hit verse 9 that says, but we see him. How do we do that? How do we let him be the representation, the perfect human to represent us in this time and place where we have failed to reflect his glory and we have failed to rule this world? First, we need to recognize our fallen state. We need to recognize our disconnect from God to acknowledge that we should actually be feeling more like Isaiah in front of the glory of God than we necessarily feel in the here and now. We need to recognize that just like the original readers of the book of Hebrews, we have this nonsensical propensity toward walking away from Jesus. And I say that, to everyone. If you are a lifelong Christian here, you can amen that. If you are a new Christian, you could relate to that. And if you're here and you're in a place where you just don't know, I don't think any of us can argue about our ridiculous propensity of putting things in place of Jesus. And again, like the original readers, our preconceived ideas, our cultural influences can make us, to any sort of degree, doubt that we need a Savior. We need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard from the manipulation and the resulting danger of not knowing who Jesus is, which is far too easy to let ourselves become impressed by other things. We need to recognize his gloriousness, we need to draw close to him, and we need to be unsatisfied with substitute glory that comes from the world. And to accept that it's the blood of Christ that restores us to God's intended purpose for human lives. Right, John 3, 16. Acts 16.30 show that, yes, it's that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he will be that representative for you. And immerse yourself in the word of God, where he is most readily and confidently found. I'm going to say that again. Immerse ourselves in the word of God, where Jesus is most readily and confidently found. In the intro, I I mentioned that much of the book of Hebrews is the author showing us that Jesus is superior to any and every possible thing that can be put in his place, which is something that's far too easy for us to do. And that this message of the book of Hebrews can and should continue to resonate with us, us who are prone so prone to be deceived into thinking that anything is better than Jesus. I'm going to invite the band back up. We're early on in Hebrews. right? We're not even done with chapter 2 yet. There's a lot yet to be covered. And as you've probably already heard as we've started this series, and you'll surely be hearing it more, it's a statement of biblical fact that Jesus is better. We'll even sing it a bunch of times, right? But making that statement of fact, and preaching it, and proclaiming it, and putting it on a big slide, that's great. But what I would love to do, church, is close today, leaving you with a twist, which is Jesus is better posed as a question. Is Jesus enough? This is a question that we can and should carry with us through our days. Like a well that we can dip into in hard times or even in times when we're comfortable and confident. A question that we want to keep in our pocket, not just through the Hebrew series, but through life. Is Jesus enough? When doubt and fear, and circumstances, that question can be posed. Is Jesus enough? If you take nothing else away from today, take that question. Because if you ask it, the answer comes back, yes, he is. The answer comes back every time, yes, he is. Christ's glory is a better glory. Amen? Amen? Amen. Pastor Rob?